just a heads up, everyone, these are adults having adult conversations, so there is the possibility of adult language. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Magic Lessons, a podcast produced by MaximumFun.org and Riverhead Books. I'm Elizabeth Gilbert, and I just wrote this book called Big Magic, Creative Living Beyond Fear. But even when I was finished with the book, I didn't feel like I was really finished with the subject. So I wanted to make this podcast where I could take the subject of creativity out into the world and have real conversations with real people about it. And that's where magic lessons come from. And what are magic lessons? Roadmaps for the path to creativity, the extra nudge we need when we're feeling stuck in our creative lives. Hey everyone, welcome to Magic Lessons. I'm Liz Gilbert. Today on Magic Lessons, I have a really special guest. So much of the stuff that keeps people from making their creative work is fear. Fear of being vulnerable, fear of being exposed, fear of being rejected, fear of the shame that can come along with trying to make something and somehow feeling like it didn't come out right. So today I wanted to call the most sage and wise and generous person I know on the topics of vulnerability and courage, my dear friend, Brene Brown. Oh my goodness, is that Brene Brown? How are you, friend? Thank you so much for coming on. Oh my God, I wouldn't have missed it for the world. And I've been saving you. I've been saving you because I wanted to talk to you at the end after I had spoken to everybody. So I've been coaching these five incredible women who are from different creative lives, two writers, a musician, a painter, and a photographer. And um, then I got some sort of guest experts to come and give them additional advice. And then I've been checking in on them to see how they're going on their creative journeys. And it's been so, so beautiful um, to watch them coming into bloom. But the struggles aren't totally over, you know, um, because it's 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 not the easiest thing in the world to put yourself out there creatively. And that's what I wanted to talk to you about and see if I can get you to riff a little bit on what creativity means to you personally and what it means to you as somebody who has spent her life studying vulnerability, shame, and courage. You know, if you asked me five years ago what creativity meant to me, I would say, oh, that's cute. That's fun. Um, uh, I don't really do a lot of ART because I've got a J-O-B. Um, <laughs> so you go do take your paintbrush or your scrapbooking and you have a great time, but I got to get shit done. Um, if you ask me now, right now, what creativity is, it is, for me, the way I share my soul with the world. Wow. And without it, I am not okay. And without having access to everyone else's, we are not okay. I have come to the conclusion that it is the only thing, the only unique contribution that we will make in this world will be born of creativity. Big question, big answer. Yeah, because I mean, can you repeat that statement? Yeah, the only unique contribution that we will make make in this world will be born of creativity. Wow. Wow. Um, And I used to believe before I did the research for the gifts of imperfection, I used to believe that there were creative people and there were non-creative people. Um, And now I absolutely understand, personally and professionally, from the data that there are no such thing as non-creative people. There are just people who use their creativity and people who don't. And unused creativity is not benign. 
Wow. I mean, that's a really beautiful statement to say that unused creativity is not benign because I think um, essentially you're saying this will make you sick <laughs> if you don't bring forth what is within you. Um, and can you give examples of what, you know, precisely where you, where you get that idea? For the people who really struggle because they don't think of themselves as creative, um, there's a lot of shame around creativity. They don't, people don't think of themselves as creative. Um, they think creativity is self-indulgent. Um, they don't think it is productive enough. They don't understand what it means. It was shut down in them as children. For those folks, when I say unused creativity is not benign, what I really mean is it metastasizes into resentment, grief, heartbreak. Um, people sit on that creativity or they deny it and it festers. So if you would have asked me five years ago to do something creative um, or even to think about what I was already doing as creativity. Right. There you go. Uh-huh. Yeah. I would have really been crappy in my – I really probably would have said, that's neat. I have a J-O-B. I work. I don't have time for that kind of stuff. That's have a – Have fun with your puppets. Big, <laughs> yeah, have fun with your puppets. Exactly. <laughs> that is a very – that's judgment that, that stems from not enough. That's judgment that stems from if I was really comfortable with your, crea your creativity and my lack of creativity, um, I wouldn't respond that way. I have to share this with you because I think it's so important that when I started the research in, in, on shame you know, 13 years ago, I found that 85% of the men and women who I interviewed remembered an event in school that was so shaming it changed how they thought of themselves for the rest of their lives. Wow. But wait, this is good. 50% of that 85%, half of those people, those shame wounds were around creativity. Wow. So they had been told they couldn't sing, that they looked stupid dancing, that they had to, it couldn't, bad artist. Um, yeah. And Read your essay, don't quit your day job. Wow. So 50% of those people wow. have art scars, have creativity scars. Wow. Um, and so we have to go back and unearth a little bit of that. I mean, I have a, this really powerful example of this young man who just loved drawing more than anything else in his life. I mean, he that's how he found safety in kind of a traumatic upbringing. That's how he expressed himself. And one day his mother was hanging something up and on the refrigerator in his house. And his father came in and said, look, we don't want him to be a faggot artist. Well, there it goes. And until he started doing this work as a 50-year-old, that picture for 40 years was the last thing he ever drew. Wow. Wow. Like in Big Magic, when you're, when you're taking on creativity, you're taking on soul work. This is not about what we do. This is about who we are. And the wounds around it are just breathtaking. You know, when you tell that story, which is, a, you know, kills me because, listen, I'm delighted for him that, that he found his way out of that. But how many other people have 
a similar story like that where they just shut down and, and they were never allowed to be makers again. They were never allowed to be participants in creation again. They could only be consumers. Um, you know, you're not allowed to, to contribute to the evolving story of a universe that's in motion. You just get to watch and buy and purchase things and that's all you get to do. Or be a brick maker, you know, just m like making bricks to keep society going. You don't get to do anything else, um, which is so tragic for people. But it also reminded me of something I haven't thought about in years, which was a really big turning point for me when I was in therapy. I had a therapist who told me, the thing that you are most afraid of has already happened. And I haven't thought about that in so long, but I feel like so much of the reason that people don't put their art forward into the world and don't take the risk is because they're terrified that it's going to be mocked, that it's going to be rejected, that they'll be ignored, that they'll be diminished. And it's very likely that that thing already occurred in the very worst way that it ever will. You know, like there's one way of looking at it, which is whatever the art that man makes for the rest of his life, can any critic in the world ever say anything that would be more hurtful than what his father said to him that day when he was a child? Um, we're all terrified of the thing that already happened. I mean, and that's so powerful because that thing that already happened a lot of times is our own voice. Right. I don't know if I would have said this to you five, you know, three years ago or two years ago, but I would definitely <laughs> say it to you just because we kind of have a no bullshit friendship. Really, I think the chances are if you put your work out in the world, you're going to get taken down by somebody at some time. Um, I know for sure that I do on a weekly basis. Um, but, and, and, you know, and sometimes that leaves me like in the fetal position in my pantry. Um, but more and more these days, because I've surrounded myself with people like you and friends who are also putting themselves out there, I'm starting to learn in the, in a really profound way for me that, that kind of criticism is a really small price to pay for doing what I love and for being whole. It's, it's, it, hey, it's the tax on the free lunch. And, and you know, the free lunch, you know what I always say, because I had a troll the other day on, on Facebook who was saying just dreadful things about me, and I, and I watched as my, my women dogpiled on him, you know, and, um, and, and I you know, I blocked him. I don't even respond. I don't, I have so many better things to do <laughs> with my time. But instead of just ignoring it, I opened up the conversation about it. And one of the things I said to them was, first of all, thank you for, you know, defending me. But, but secondly, more importantly, can we just take a moment to appreciate the fact that I am a woman who has a voice and that my voice terrifies a man like that? so much that he just his whole apple cart falls over and he just loses his shit and all he can like i'm he's so freaked out by the fact that i am a childless creative woman speaking about female autonomy that he can't even do anything else with his day except sit there and lose his mind in public over it can we just call that a victory? Like, like nothing, you know, like how many thousands, thousands of years of women had never upset men because they never had a voice, you know? Um, so, so when I get criticized in that way, I just think, well, well, that's a good sign, you know? And it's not that I love it. Um, nobody loves it. It doesn't feel good. It, it, it hurts. But when I compare that to the hurt 
of what it would feel like for me to be whispering in a corner. Right. This you can't even. It's not even on the same seesaw. You know what I mean? Like it's. Oh my God, no! Yeah. You know, I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll take it too. I will. I'll take it too because the price is way too high the other way. Mm-hmm. Way, way, way too high. And I'm so glad you brought this up because let's continue on our no bullshit line. Um, here's the truest, deepest, scariest believing about this. Um, and recently, I was at an event and a woman stood up and she said, "I'm just coping with my rage right now because I took an enormous risk. I quit my job to follow my creative dreams. I managed to convince a bunch of other people to go along with me on it. I took out loans. I mortgaged my house. I." threw myself 100% into this thing and it totally failed and I lost money and I lost dignity and I lost friends and I lost all my faith in the universe because I jumped and the net didn't catch me. And I said, who are you angry at right now? And she said, I'm furious at inspiration. I'm furious at inspiration. Now I have my own answer for that, but before I get to mine, since you've spent so much time and in your new book, Rising Strong, you're talking to people about their failures, um, people from military officers to artists, people who did jump and the net didn't catch them, um, and what then happened. And so I'm curious if you could speak to that because it's, you know, I'm very careful not to sell to people this is going to work. <laughs> you're going to get what you want out of this. Um, you're going to become famous. Like I'm very careful to never try to sell that. But at the same time, I do encourage people to to put themselves out there in various ways. I do not encourage people to take mortgages out on their houses and quit their jobs. I'm I'm very careful about not, you know, not encouraging people to do that. But but I'm wondering if you can. What would you have said um, if a woman in the audience gave you that line and ended with "I'm furious at inspiration. It let me down." I did my part. It didn't do it. I don't know that inspiration, I mean, for me, I mean, I have to really think about it because like you, I want to be careful about those things because I, I did actually take the exact leap she's describing. I um, I pulled away from a tenure track position, borrowed money from my parents, couldn't get a publisher, self-published my first book. It got picked up and then it totally failed. And the publisher called and said, we're pulping it. Um, so I, I've, I've, <laughs> I've stuck that landing. Um <laughs> And so I, I don't know. I think one of the things that I have to think about all the time and I invite people to think about when we're talking about this is the idea of if you jump and leap, I don't leap or jump for the landing. Right. I leap for the, for the experience through the air because you cannot predict the landing. Right. Um, not, I mean, not on the backside of a couple of really best-selling books. I don't know what's going to happen with the next book. But when you get to the place where standing on the edge is more painful than risking a failure, I think you owe it to yourself and your world and the world to leap. And here's one thing I know. The most successful people that I've ever interviewed, that I know personally, have at least one or five stories just like hers right now. I like the term one or five. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they have failures. They have one or they have 50, but I don't know right. anyone who has ever stuck a landing the first time or doesn't have a series of those kind of experiences behind them. So for me, you know, I used to ask myself this question all the time. What would I do if I knew I couldn't fail? Mm-hmm. 
And that was move out of my strictly academic job and write books that for people like myself and my sisters and my mom and my friends. And I would do that if I knew I couldn't fail. And I did it and I failed. Then I was like, well, screw Mm -hmm. this. But now the question becomes for me, what's worth doing even if I fail? There you go. (laughs) I've been wanting to walk around with a Sharpie for my entire life and edit that freaking bumper sticker because I see it everywhere and I always want to put a little carrot edit note on top of it and say, what do you love doing so much that the word failure doesn't even have any meaning? You know, what would you do even if it was a total failure? What do you want to do because you don't have a choice? Um, Let go of this whole idea of it worked, it didn't work. You know, um, it, it was a success. It wasn't a success. And and when that woman spoke to me, one of the thoughts that I had was, when did inspiration promise us that it owes us anything? You know, yeah. um, it was never my understanding of the contract. As far as I understand inspiration, it owes you nothing except the transcendence of the experience of working with it at all. That's, That's beautiful. the only contract that we have with inspiration. It wants to dance with you. And we want to dance with it. And the, the result, that's all human ego question, you know. Um, inspiration doesn't look at you and go, well, that didn't work, you know. Um, inspiration looks at you and said, that was fun. <laughs> look what we did. And you're like in a heap at the bottom of the cliff, like with yeah. 100 broken bones, like, where, what happened to my house? <laughs> that, that's exactly and right. And inspiration's like, oh, my God, that was so much fun. You want to do it again? You want to do yeah. it again? And, you know, there's a line that I have in Big Magic um, quoting the, the British critic Clive James when he says, failure has a function. It asks you if, it, if you really want to go on making things. Um, and and it, oh. isn't that lovely? Oh, 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 my God. Do you want to do it again? I when I read your book. <laughs> do you want to do it again? Should we do it again? And I feel like, you know, I want to speak to you, too, about the difference between um, – self-forgiveness and discipline, because I think one of the the errors in thinking that I see people make when they start to embark on creativity is that they think that the most important thing they need is discipline, when I think the most important thing you need is self-forgiveness, because the only thing that's going to get you back to work on day two is if you forgive yourself for how bad your work was on day one. Um, and th- that's not discipline. That's just That's just love. There is zero question in my mind that you're right about that. There is zero question. Um, Day two doesn't stop because of willpower or discipline. It stops because of shame. Right. Um, And the the answer to shame, the antidote to shame is not discipline. The actual antidote to shame is empathy. We had a Twitter conversation about this once. We did. In the middle of the night that was so important to me because I was struggling with a really big shame assault on myself for something that I still feel like I failed miserably. I still think about a couple hours a day um, of an incident that happened in my life that I just, I feel like I blew it, you know, and I couldn't get around it. And I wrote to you in Twitter in the middle of the night, Brene Brown, what is the opposite of shame? What is the antidote? How can I help myself with this. And you wrote back empathy. And it was not what I was expecting. Um, I thought it was going to be dignity or self-esteem or self-worth or, you know, discipline, but it's empathy. So now it's kindness. It's talk to yourself oof. like you talk to someone you love. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, it's like, how, what would, if I, you know, and if I look, if I wake up on day two and I look back at the draft and it sucks and I've got half written, I, I wanted to write a thousand words. I wrote 200 and it's a shitty 200 and, um, it doesn't make any sense. I would probably say, like, Jesus, you are such a loser. Get your shit together, Brene. God, I mean, you're just such a fake writer. There's like imposter writer. If you called me and you said, hey, it's Liz, and I'm just in a hard place because I was supposed to write a 1,000 words. I wrote 200. I'm looking at it this morning. It's all shit. What do you think? And I'd say, I think you're writing. I think it's amazing. And I think those shitty 200 words, you don't get to the other ones before you write those. So I'm proud of you, and I love you, and keep writing. Can I call you tomorrow? <laughs> Like you talk right. to someone you love. Right, right. We have such capacity to offer that um, to everybody but ourselves. And I had a I had a really big breakthrough once with that where a friend of mine who I was very kind to because I loved her said to me, um, what makes you think you're so special? And, and I was like, what? Mm-hmm. And she said, what makes you think you're so special that you're the only human being who's not deserving of compassion? Mm-hmm. You think you, you, you think you're better than everyone else? And I was like, oh, my God, it's the first time I understood the narcissism of depression, right, um, that, that you put yourself in this special category where you alone are not deserving and you alone are not worthy. Um, and therefore, you're special and in a weird way, better than everybody else. <laughs> yeah, it's the hyper-independence. Uh, wow. Go it alone. It's, uh, it's those German roots I come oh, from. Oh, as a Swede, I, um, yeah. I hear you and I feel you. Um, a couple of the people who I who I spoke to who were struggling with their creativity were dealing with um, telling personal stories in their art, but they were fearful of a backlash or a reprisal. Um, and you've spoken a lot about how important it is to own your story. So I'm wondering if you might be able to offer some words on that. Yeah, I mean, I'm really here's here's kind of my I don't know if it's a if it's a it's not a rule, but these are the these are the guidelines. These are the lane lines for me because I share a lot of my own stuff. Um, I believe we share our owning our stories, you know, the only options are owning them or orphaning them. And I believe our self-worth lives inside the story, our own story. And so we can walk into that story and own it, or we can stand outside of our truth and outside of our narrative and we can hustle and pretend and perfect and perform for our worthiness. Um, so I do believe in owning a story. Having said that, I also believe we share those stories with people who've earned the right to hear them. Mm. And the only stories I share with the public in my writing or in my speaking are stories that I have really processed. Here's the litmus test for me. I've really processed those stories. And my healing is not contingent on your opinion of those stories. That preaches. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean that so works. I, okay, so when, so you don't need to. Your healing process is not requisite on on an audience receiving it. Mm-mm. Your healing process happened in the writing, in the telling, in the nourishing, in the in the growing. Um, so you don't need me to read your book and tell you that you're okay. No, because I don't usually write anything that I haven't processed in therapy, talked about with the people in the story. I don't write anything. One, number one, I don't write, I don't share any stories about myself that don't serve my work and that don't serve my mission and what I'm trying to do with my work. Second, again, and I've done it. Oh my God, I learned this at School of Hard Knocks. I've shared my story. 
um, before I healed, before I was ready. And when you do that, not only it's not giving and generous for the people hearing it and receiving it, and it's really abusive to yourself. Wow. You're not ready and your healing has not been done. So how people respond to that story, uh, like if I say, oh, I did this and I had a really bad shame attack and I'm still overcoming it and that's still fresh and tender and someone says, man, you know, you should have been ashamed. That was, you know, it was a real shit show you did there. Yeah, you suck. Um, Yeah, you suck. I would be devastated if on the other hand, it's something I've processed and worked through and I'm on the shame resilient side of that story and someone responds to that way, I can say... I have neutrality. I don't really say anything one way or another because... (laughs) Well, there's nothing to defend. There's nothing to defend. So one of the things I see happening a lot, like sometimes StoryCorps will come to Houston or I'll read something um, someone wrote. And what I see in it behind the story is a deep yearning for some healing. That's not the right place to do Mm, it. That's really interesting. That's really, really interesting. I've never heard anybody say that before because often people are prescribed to put it out there um, in order to get rid of it, you know, um, to take it off themselves. And and there is sort of a self-compassion about, you know, are you ready yet? Um, I'm setting aside whether your family is ready um, for you to share those stories. Are you ready? Is it time? Yeah, I think you share a story when the res- when your healing is not dependent on the response. And so I don't share stories that I have not worked through. I don't think it's in service of the reader, and I don't think it's in service of my own heart. I like you for saying that. I have never heard that before, and now it's in my arsenal. <laughs> You know what I feel like sometimes when you're sometimes when I'm in places and people ask me questions that I feel are above my pay grade, you know, I always want to have the lifeline call to be like Brene, Cheryl, Rob <laughs> Bell, you know, Ian Levanzan, somebody somebody help me with this one, you know? Um cuz now I you've given me something that I can give to people because that's a question that 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 people come to me with in various different forms. Um I do not want to let you go without us speaking about our favorite topic, martyrdom versus tricksterdom. Mm-hmm. Um, and you and I have spoken extensively about my theory on the difference between being a martyr in your life and being a trickster in your life, whether it's um, in in your personal relationships, but especially in the in the realm of creativity. And um, and I believe you have a tale about this, and I'm wondering if you feel comfortable sharing it or riffing on that um, or giving, giving the people something about that. Sure. Are you talking about the, the tale that you share mm. in Big Magic? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, or uh, anything no. that you want to add to it. If you want to sort of no, back yeah, up and explain the, the martyrdom versus tricksterdom idea yeah. in your own words. Yeah, no. I, you changed my life. Uh, well, Brene, you like, changed mine, so we're even. <laughs> um, but post that you wrote yeah. on this, I read it and I was like, holy God, I am a martyr. I'm a creative martyr. I'm like, I'm writing and I'd rather slit my wrists and I just don't know. You know, it's like um, I was just a creative martyr. Like this is hard and horrible and um, and I'm a storyteller and I talk about connection, but I'm locked in a room in isolation. And um, this is, I mean, it was just for years that was my modus operandi around around creativity. Then I read your article and I was like, I don't have a I don't have a lot of patience for for martyrdom. It's not part of the Texas DNA, uh-huh. and so I was almost sick of hearing myself complain about it. Right. And I was like, okay, 
I summons the trickster. Um, and so what I did for Rising Strong is because I'm a natural storyteller and speaking and talking and storytelling are verbally or more, I'm an oral storyteller first and then a writer because you got to get it in books. Right. Um, so what I did is I invited some really people who are very close to me. They're on my work team. I said, can we go down to Galveston for a couple of long weekends? I'm going to stand in front of you on the couch while you, you know, while you drink soda and eat tacos. And I'm going to tell all the stories that I want to tell in Rising Strong. And I'm going to have someone write it all down for me as I'm talking about it. And I'm going to use that as the foundation for the book. I love this story so much. And they were like, oh, my God, are you kidding me? And I was like, no. And they're like, we're in. So, And these are, again, people who work for me and with me. And so they we actually cleared three weeks. And we did it every day. And I made walls of Post-it notes and talked about my theory and explained it to them and said, yeah, we see your theory. We don't understand what you're talking about. And I changed the story and I moved things. And we were together all the time and we laughed. And uh, they would wake up in the morning. We spent the night. We, we, they'd wake up in the morning. I'd have coffee out and breakfast. And I'd say, okay, I got a new story and I got a new way to talk about this that's truer to the data. And I brought all the data with me, um, which is like, you know, two trunkfuls and um and it was an amazing team building collaborative uh connected experience um that helped me give birth to I think probably one of my most important works and it wasn't a it wasn't the stations of the cross and it wasn't, it wasn't a trail of tears um no it was a trail was of tacos and laughter a, and community yeah. and joy um oh. It's so good because I feel like as long as we stay locked in this idea that creativity can only be born through suffering, sacrifice, pain, and torment, it will always be born through suffering, sacrifice, pain, and torment. But when we open ourselves up to the idea that it can be done joyfully, collectively, lovingly, forgivingly, then that's the work that you make. I mean, amen. And you know what you you know what I learned from this experience that seems like I would have called this weak chicken shit. I would have named this some horrible shaming name before I read that article. I my creativity is requires midwifery. Right. I need a midwife. Right. Um I don't need I need to be able to talk and 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 tell stories and get feedback and I need something and I didn't think I did because I'm really introverted right. but and proud you're proud yes. you know and I'm proud oh god yes yeah I know that I don't need anybody I got this mm -mm. yeah yeah, yeah, I'm just going to lock myself away, yeah. and then two months I'm going to come out, and it's going to be a masterpiece. And no. I will be limping and forever harmed, and there will be five years taken off my life, you know? Um, right. And but I'll wear that as a badge of courage. There you go. There's the, there's the proof of my legitimacy as a creator is mm -hmm. that how much this harmed me. Um, no, we don't do that anymore, Brene. <laughs> no, I have this new line, that I, a little thing that I put up in my study that said, creativity, we don't have to do it alone. We were never meant to. Yes. Brene, you have such a huge emotional impact on me. I love that you came on here today to talk. And I'm wondering if I can ask you one last favor, mm -hmm. um, because I think of you as somebody who is doing holy work. Um, if you could just offer a benediction to the people out there who are 
struggling and trying to come out of their fear and their shame and their self-abuse and their lack of belonging um, and give them a little uh, a little blessing as they go along their way creatively. Mm, God. You're from Texas. I know you can preach. <laughs> oh, yeah, I can preach a little bit, but it's just, it's so hard because I think what makes my voice shake about this is that it's probably what I need to hear. Oh, well, let's do that then. <laughs> I mean, I think what, I think the benediction, I think the benediction would be for all of us that you are a born maker and we need what you can bring to us because you're the only one who can bring it. I think it's that simple. Can I put an amen on that? Amen, sister. I love you so much, Brene Brown. I love you too, Liz Gilbert. And I cannot wait to see you crossing paths on book tours and, and getting down in San, in San Francisco. We'll be together again. <laughs> and everybody, um, go, go get a copy of Rising Strong. Go get a copy of any book that you see that has the name Brene Brown on the cover and then just watch what's going to happen to your life um, because you have something so important to bring us and you were the only one who could bring it and you did. So onward. <laughs> onward. And thank you for what you're doing and thank you so much for Big Magic. You brought my creative self um, out of the torture chamber and into a big love fest, and I am grateful for it. We all got to eat at that buffet table. It's time. Yes. All right, sweetheart. I love you. Onward. Love you Thank you so much, and um, I'll see you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. Brene Brown is a researcher and an amazing storyteller, and she's the best-selling author of Daring Greatly, How the Courage to be Vulnerable Transforms the Way We Live, Love, Parent, and Lead. Her brand new book is called Rising Strong, and I really encourage you to check it out. You can find out more about her at brenebrown.com. That's it for this episode of Magic Lessons, and that's it for this season of Magic Lessons. But I'm pretty sure we're going to be meeting again, so stay tuned. And in the meantime, thanks for listening. Magic Lessons is produced by MaximumFun.org and Riverhead Books. Michelle Siegel is our producer. Our executive producer is Jesse Thorne. Our theme music was written by Dave Cahill and performed by Dave Cahill and Dallas Vietti. Special thanks to Becky Salatin, Jeffrey Klosky, Michelle Kafopoulos, Lydia Hurt, and Paul Ruest of Argo Studios. If you want to learn more about my ideas on creative inspiration, check out my new book, Big Magic, Creative Living Beyond Fear. It's published by Riverhead, and it comes out on September 22nd, 2015. That's in like one week, you guys. You can find out more information about my comings and goings on elizabethgilbert.com, and you can always find me, personally, on Facebook, because I'm there literally every single day. So let's keep the conversation going. 